Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame Podcast, presented by the Hampton Inn Waco. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame Podcast. I'm Jackson Michael. The Texas Sports Hall of Fame hosted its second Lone Star Luncheon in May of 2023. The luncheon featured Major League Baseball pitching icon Roger Clemens. Attendees enjoyed a delicious steak lunch and a wonderful storytelling session with Roger Clemens, moderated by former Houston Astros announcer Bill Brown. This episode will put you tableside with some highlights from the luncheon. Remember that you can attend future Lone Star luncheons at the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. Follow the Texas Sports Hall of Fame on its social media channels on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame's official website, tshof.org to learn how you can attend the next Lone Star Luncheon and keep up with all of the fantastic events happening at the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. You can also listen to highlights of the Lone Star Luncheon with golf legend Lee Trevino in episode 47 of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. If you enjoy the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, please remember to like, review, and share the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Roger Clemens attended Springwoods High School in the Houston area. Clemens's road to the major leagues included pitching in junior college before playing for the great Cliff Gustafson at the University of Texas. You can listen to Roger Clemens share stories about his Longhorn career, and hear Coach Gustafson discuss his life and career in Episode 3 of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Roger Clemens was drafted by the Boston Red Sox in the first round of the 1983 amateur draft. He went on to win seven Cy Young Awards, the most of any pitcher in history. He also had 20 strikeouts in a game two times, also unmatched in Major League Baseball history. He won two World Series as a member of the New York Yankees and also pitched in the World Series for the Boston Red Sox and the Houston Astros. Roger Clemens also pitched for the Toronto Blue Jays. He was inducted into the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in 1998. Former Astros announcer Bill Brown started the discussion by asking about Clemens's early years. Pick up the story then with how you really got immersed in this sport. Yeah, so um, the, the story is, I mean, it's well told. My, my pops passed away when I was nine and I was raised by two strong-willed ladies, my mother and my grandmother. My, the way we ended up um, in Texas, my brother got stationed at Fort Hood, and uh, he sits past, he served in Vietnam, um, jumping on that subject. I have five uncles that served. If anybody in this room has served or have someone that served, I tip my cap to you uh, forever. It's so, so important. Uh, the, uh, 
So yeah, my mom, uh, my mom worked three jobs in Houston. She was an accountant by day. Um, I helped her stock coolers in the afternoon and we cleaned some warehouse bill office buildings at night. I had a sweet red glove and a brand new pair of cleats, so I thought we were rich. And, uh, but mom, you know, she grinded it out and uh, took me to my games, dropped me off to practices. I'll never forget, uh, you know, where you come from. Deb and I still live in Houston, seven miles from my high school. And uh, then college, San Jack, yeah. Wayne Graham. Yes, so really when you bring that up, it makes me think about um, uh, growing up, I had three wonderful coaches. They were all great coaches, better teachers of the game and the game of life for me. Charlie Mariano since passed at Springwoods High School. Charlie, coach, could have probably got a uh, NCAA job anywhere in the country to quadruple his pay. He had to stay close to home because Sandy, his wife, uh, was the longest uh, living with Sia. And so she was right there. And she was uh, the coach's, ultimate coach's wife. When he, he would get on us too hard, we'd go to her and complain to her, and she would air him out <laughs> and tell him to back off. And, uh, but coach was like my father figure. I didn't have a car in high school, so we lived, our, our house was about three miles from school, so we had to walk back on after practice and jog back to the house or whatever. Then I, fortunate, I played for Coach Wayne Graham. Everybody knows that name in this room. Coach, uh, another baseball lifer. I consider him right next to like a Don Zimmer or bench coach. Zim never cashed a check outside of Major League Baseball. Uh, but Coach Graham, uh, baseball man through and through. Um, I matured with his program, I grew a little bit, and then uh, Coach Gus came calling, winning as coach uh, in NCAA baseball at the time, and he never really raised his voice. It was like that old commercial way back when, you know, when he had like talks, people listened. That's the way it was with Coach Gus. When he said something, you, you, took, uh, you took a note, and uh, it was great going lost in 82 in the World Series, I think tied for third, maybe in Miami. Came back the next year and beat Alabama, and, and that's kind of when my life changed a little bit. Going getting drafted by the Red Sox and going on professionally. There's the ring. There it is. Yeah, I wear this. I wear my national championship ring more than I wear uh, my World Series rings. Clemens next spoke about his breakthrough 1986 season with the Red Sox, and how teammate Bruce Hurst gave him the nickname the Rocket. He also shared memories of striking out 20 batters in a single game. Still a major league record. He even gave some background about being drafted by the Red Sox after Texas had won the College World Series. The, I think the uh, Rangers had number one pick, the Astros had the third pick, and we kept seeing the scouts, so I kind of think, you know, was thinking that, hey, I'm gonna you know, stay close to home, get drafted by one of these guys. The only other one that we knew was the um, the Los Angeles Dodgers had the 18th pick, and they had said they were going to take it. But I went right before that to Boston. I was like, I didn't know where Boston was. I was like, what? <laughs> and uh, my mom, being in the story, like she had, she wrote me a couple of nice poems about Fenway Park. So I get drafted, go through the minor league pretty quick, kind of go home to relax. And uh, the Red Sox know, said, no, you're coming to Fenway. We want to show you around, do some things, blah, blah, blah. It was a really cool game because I think the Red Sox were playing Baltimore. And I think Dennis Eckersley was facing Jim Palmer when I was there. So it was a pretty good matchup for me to see. But the funny thing is, is when I um, came from the airport, you know, I don't think there's cell phones, you know, whatever. If they were, there was a big shoe looking at yeah. And um, so I had my head in the paper. Next thing you know, the cab driver parks, stops, says, here you go, kid. And I look out the window and I just see a brick. I thought it was a warehouse. 
And uh, I go, hey, Cabby, I said, I'm a professional ball player. I'm going to Fenway Park. I'm a Boston Red. He goes, this is it, kid. Get your ass out of my cabin. Boston and then you know New York, Toronto, 
Houston, but somewhere along the line, you're getting advice that doesn't really pertain, or you have to filter out what works for you. Yeah, I, I tell the, the young kids, the minded guys, the professional guys, uh, you know, keep your eyes and ears open. You're going to hear several things, especially, you know, Cody and all the guys in the minor leagues. He was college player of the year. He gets four bats in, uh, with the Tigers in the minor leagues, and there's a hitting coach that says, you can't hit with a leg kick. He calls me and says, you can't hit with a leg kick. I go, has this guy been watching? There's, there's, there's 500 guys in the majors that have a leg kick. When you, when you ask the question, it was, you know, I was fortunate when I was in high school, I snuck down to Astrodome to watch Nolan Ryan. I got to play with Tom Seaver, who I consider the ultimate power pitcher. I watched him pitching at 42 years of work, 40 or 42, sitting at about 88 miles an hour. He gets in a jam, 94, 94 strikeout pop up. I go, okay, now I see what's going on here. So it, it, it's guys like that. Um, I was a student of the game. When I first got in the majors, I had a little that little plastic box with those three by five index cards. Had all my hitters on there. I had the umpires in there too because we had National League and American League guys. I knew where the umpire's hometown was. If he was from New Hampshire and he's working the plate, I'm pretty sure he's left eight or ten tickets for his family watching <laughs> umpire. It works out really nice when he comes out and begin the game and he hands you a ball and I say, Derwood, how are we doing, buddy? Everything's good? Yeah. Derwood's from here, but I would say that to Derwood. I'd say, uh, how's things going? He goes, thanks for asking, Rack. Doing good. I said, how's Dorothy? Is she good? Good. Thanks for asking. Yeah, now the borderline pitch team. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, you, you do that. It went from the index cards to my Blackberry, and then it went to my iPhone the last six or eight, you know, six years of my career. And Mel Stoudemire, we're going through the pitchers meeting, and he, he knows I'm not texting friends or something. I'm actually putting those guys in there. So the next morning when I wake up, you know, whether it be game one or game seven of the World Series or whatever, I'm reviewing these hitters over how I'm going to try and break them down and attack them. I'm going to look for your weakness as quick as I can. There was a story about uh, Jim Palmer and Earl Weaver, and they were going over the hitters on the other team, scouting the board, and Weaver said, okay, this guy's a great high fastball hitter. Next guy, great high fastball hitter. So on down the line. And uh, Palmer got up. Left and said, where, where, where are you going, Jim? He said, Well, I'm a high fastball pitcher, Earl. He said, Oh, no, we're not talking about your high fastball. Yes, I tell the same story all the time when I'm in meetings, and they say, This guy's a first ball fastball hitter. First ball. And I'm on a team with El Duque, David Wells, David Cohen, who all throw frisbees in there, usually for strike one. And, um, and uh, they, they, you know, I go over to the Yankees next thing you know, my Kerbal's my fourth best pitch, and they're trying to throw ball one. Then he calls split, and I miss it out of the zone like it's supposed to, and then I'm 2-0 and on everybody's. So I had to sit down with the catchers, and there's going to be a documentary coming out I did with Greg Maddox, and Maddox, was, I thought was really cool. What he said is that um, even though I can, you know, he's a power pitcher, even though he throws 88, you know, you know, I pitched over, I threw balls over 100 miles an hour, but I pitched 95, 97, and when, uh, we, they started interleague play. Maddox said he went and pulled up my videos of facing these guys because he knew I worked on my fastball. And so that's what you were trying to do. A little different when you got to the National League. You know, your first couple guys aren't going to hurt you. So I would do what I call my bowling ball. It was a heavy two-seamer in the middle. I don't want to get the 11 pitcher back with you. Then I'm not getting to the ninth inning or the eighth inning. I know that sounds weird right now. Some guys go four. But, uh... <laughs> when we return... 
Roger Clements talks about changes in pitching and the rule changes of today. He also fields questions from the audience and shares more tremendous stories from his career on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Presented by the Hampton Inn Waco. When you come to Waco, be sure to stay at the Hampton Inn Waco, located just a short distance from the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. You'll start your day off with a delicious complimentary breakfast, and you'll enjoy the Hampton Inn Waco's free Wi-Fi, fitness center, and pool. Next time you bring your team to Waco, make the Hampton Inn Waco your home court on the road. Welcome back to Highlights from the Lone Star Luncheon with guest Roger Clemens on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by the Hampton Inn Waco. So now we have openers and guys that go one inning, guys that go forward, you mentioned, and they're pretty much just throwing as hard as they can. But, uh, it, are we losing the, I mean, the pitching is still, there are a lot of great pitchers around now, but are we losing the art of pitching in this process of not having the mentality of I'm going night? Yeah, I think you have to tie that in with uh, the pitch clock. I, I know the Miami guys are really good that have made it to the majors. They're okay with it because they've been dealing with it. Even some of your veteran pitchers that I've watched and, and talked or text, the biggest thing I was telling them, you know, you're a power pitcher, you're turning into a power thrower because you're hearing this fastball away in your head and you just grab it and heave it. You have no process of what you're trying to do, especially if you happen to get to the lineup for a third time. You'll never make it through that line of time because you're just throwing. Now, they pitch it east and west. Uh, I love the, you know, the top of the zone strike. I would love that even more because I featured the ball up there and then I would go down with my split to change your eye level. So, but like, a lot of them are just grabbing the ball and heaving it with no purpose. And so that's where, and they have the stuff to do that. Now, your relievers, everybody in the back end, most teams in the majors, their back end the bullpen guys are all going you know, 100 miles an hour. Your relievers, the mechanics really don't have to be that good. We, we, we've got some guys that, like, it, it, they look like they're pitching because they're coming at you with elbows and knees and legs and hips. They look like a blender with the lid off of it. They're coming <laughs> after you, right? It's going, it's going everywhere. Yeah. But if you can stretch them out to 15, 20 pitches, you might run into one. And especially if they have to be back-to-back nights when you get to the playoffs, when you see a guy like that. So that, it's, that's the biggest thing about the rule changes that I've noticed that guys do with that pitch clock. You know, some of them use it to their advantage, but some of them are just grabbing a ball and once the catcher calls it, they throw it. I was watching Scherzer earlier this season. I know you, you would have done this too. You, you, the best players use rule changes, things like that, to their advantage. They figured out very, and he he would he would freeze a hitter. Yeah, it's just a way of working that clock, isn't it? Do you like that? Yeah, I mean, I told you know, Baggy's a great friend, and I told Baggy when I faced him, you know, his wide stance, he's basically doing a squat. So I'm going to hold it as long as I can. His thighs are going to start burning. He's going to have to call timeout, or I'm gonna, he's going to have his swing's going to be underwater. So I'm going to hold it on somebody like that, you know, that are in that situation. Said so the same thing to Cody. Cody gets ready, and he's in a flex position. And there's been some pitchers that take the clock all the way down about three seconds on him. 
So you have to call timeout because you're gonna feel like you're in quicksand, that you're stuck. And that's what you want. That's you know, again, that's the timing part of it that you're trying to, especially when I'm facing a guy like over my career, Cal Ripken say. I mean, I faced Ripken 120 times. There's not there's not one pitch that I have that he's not seen. There's not one batting stance that he has. So it's really a game within a game. I mean, especially man on third. One out, I know he's trying to, so I'm featured. He knows I'm sinking it. So now the catcher said, Watch him. He's going to spread out now because he knows he's going to try and hit it. You know, so you have to just pay attention to the detail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, uh, you always work quickly. And in fact, I remember you even mouthing some pitches to the catcher when the hitter wasn't looking. And I thought, Wow, is this something else? But uh, it works. <laughs> and what, do you like the speed up rules now? Yeah, I would have been fine with it. I, I, you know, I called 95% of my game from the mound, and it was just with my looks. Um, when the you know, foul ball or the guy's doing his batting gloves. And the only time I had to be careful was when a catcher got traded to another team and they come in, then all bets are off. I mean, I think we got it one time, uh, early, mid, mid, mid to late 80s, you know, no one would show his teeth when he wanted to throw his changeup. So you had, to, you had to watch him. The guys instead of looking down at the roster, watch him, so you had to go do it. Um, I would do a number of things. I would hitch, I would kind of hitch my pants there. If I wanted to uh, repeat that pitch, I would just give him a quick nod. But usually with my looks where I'm looking, he knew which side of the plate I want, and that would dictate fastball or slide for the most part. Straight down the barrel was curveball or split because I'm trying to throw him pretty much down the middle. So it was a great deal. We were working great. Austin's loved it. All the guys loved it. And we, we were in sync pretty much the whole way. Now, back in the day, when we thought guys on second were messing around with pitches, in a crucial spot, that's what I would call awesomeness out or Morgan Posada out and would say, hey, I'm going slider, adding front door slider, which is like a cutter, and then no matter what, I'm finishing with a split. So no signs. So you do two things. You go back there, and you turn around, hit his glove twice, and go, come on. Hit him, all of a sudden, call timeout. Because he's not getting anything from the guy second. <laughs> so now we got a problem. Now we know something's going on. Yeah. Um, I do like the way the game is moving along, but uh, have we solved all the problems now? You think the, the next Generation Z is going to be cool with baseball now? The biggest problem for you and I, because we're doing TV, we can't tell any stories. Yeah, do it. We've got to speed tell. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, the, again, the only one I don't like is, <clears throat> excuse me, the disengagement. That, that, well, that's, you know, that's a little bit. And when you're changing all these rules, why is the foul ball still called a foul ball when you hit it? It's fair. Let's change that. Everybody put that in your complaint box. Never figured that one out. It's a fair poll. <laughs> Roger Clemens was a hero in Boston, and he loved pitching for the Red Sox. After 13 seasons in Boston, he ended up with the Toronto Blue Jays for two seasons. He later pitched for the Yankees and Astros. At the Lone Star Luncheon, Clemens gave the backstory as to why he didn't finish his career in Boston. You know, everybody thought you were going to be a Red Sox for life, right? So um, did it revitalize your career to go to Toronto then after that? I don't think so because you were going to work, have the same work ethic no matter where you were. Yeah, I mean, my second to last start, I tied my major league record. I struck out 22 starts before the end of my contract. I was in the top five all pitching categories. Um, but yeah, I was going to sign a four-year deal at less money. Just I was going to finish. I thought hey, I was going to go into you know, doing something else. Who knows what? But uh, I was feeling pretty good about that. But at the time.
time the general manager came in, he actually sent five of us packing. One of them, Mike Remo, he had the best swing on the team at the time. And uh, but he wanted his own team. I mean, uh, he he and he wished me well in the twilight of my career. He just happened to go another twelve years, so it was a good twilight. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, he 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 told the assistant GM who would run with me in between my starts. We had a nice little three mile. Uh, running spot on the water in Boston. Everybody runs in Boston, so it's easy to get out there and find a companion to run with. But I would be doing my distance running in between starts, and Augie's kind of feeling me out, so he's kind of like KGB. I said, oh, you're, I see what you're trying to do. I said, well, just tell him this is what I'm looking to do, and this is what he's going to get. And he aired out, uh, Duquette and aired out, Augie said, you don't give a 32-year-old pitcher a three-year deal at 32 years of age, I go, no, you're right, you're in a 10 year deal. <laughs> what they're getting right now, you're right. So, but it, it was the best thing. You gotta understand in Boston, really, they, um, the Yankees really weren't our rivals. They had Donnie Mattingly, they had a few good players, but they were, they were terrible, they were a terrible team. And uh, the team that we battled with was the Blue Jays, late 80s, early 90s, they won back-to-back -back titles. Once I went over to New York, Steinbrenner flew, George flew down to uh, Houston twice. The second time, he's like, I've been here twice, and you want to be a Yankee or don't you? And, uh, but once I went to New York, we got competitive ownership change in Boston. They bounced their team up, then the good rival, the rival became bad. Anytime you're fighting for one, two teams, one trophy, you're going to knock some heads. How was Steinbrenner for you? He was great. A little more mellow than when Reggie, Reggie had him. <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, he was still funny. I, I'd always smile at him, and he would yell at me, because, why are you smiling at me? I love you, boss. You know, but he, he was the type of uh, owner. I mean, you want to play for a guy. If he had uh, five bucks in his pocket and the guy that made our team better was 10, he's, he's going to find a way to get him. And um, he would come in on two or three game uh, losing streaks and I would be pitching that night. I'm sitting there doing my little five pound cuff weights in the trainer's room and I could see him coming in in his penny loafers and his white turtleneck and his jacket. And I looked at him and said, Hey, I always called him boss. Hey, boss, I brought you here for a reason. I got you tonight, I got you. <laughs> walk back out, it's going to be yelling at me. And owners are a different breed, aren't they? Yeah, they are. So, and Graydon certainly pursued you. Yeah, well, speaking of Waco, I want everybody in this room to get a position. Send Graydon. I came home to pitch, I gave him a hometown discount. Then he wanted me to come stay out of retirement, pitch again. I said, well, I'm not going to do it for a discount. And then we made him millions. He builds this football. I said, I, I left him a text the other day. I was running around Waco, seeing a couple of buddies or something. And, and uh, I see the football stadium with a name on it. And I, I went into the football stadium. I walked everywhere else. I don't see also home with a rocket anywhere. I made you so much money. You could put my name somewhere in that football stadium. Baseball is a sport that is known for having a lot of characters and also for generating friendships. Moderator Bill Brown asked Clemens to name some teammates that stood out to him. He also shared a great story about some true major league legends. Who are some of the most fun teammates you've ever had? Man, I've had, I've had a bunch. I mean, obviously, dear to my heart, all my catchers. You know, Charlie O'Brien was one of the best. He just, I, I don't think he just released it, but he had a book come out called Cy Young Catcher. I think he caught 10 or 11 years of Cy Young Award winners. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, Atlanta guys, you know. Yeah, Atlanta was smoked in, everybody like that. 
Um, just, I had some wonderful catchers, again, paying attention to detail, trusting their hands, being the boys are catchers or whatever, the coaches that are here. We call some guys windshield wipers. You can't have that. you got to really trust your hands. And really a professional player. I tell the guys in, um, really from double A up, that if a catcher's asking for a ball on this side of the plate or this side of the plate, you should be able to deliver that ball within a ball, ball and a half. That's your professional. It's what you do. And that, that's just practicing perfect. I don't need to have a big quality day at work. I need you to be practice perfect and understand what you're doing. But teammates, um, man, just just some characters. You know, we had we had. Uh, I mean, playing with Oil Cam boy. Oil Cam was the next closest thing to Mark Fidrich. You know, Cam we talked to the baseball out there, and uh, uh, he just had some good stories. Uh, uh, you know, just watching him work, but. I had some great, you know, again, coming up uh, as a rookie, I got broken in by, you know, Jim Rice took me under his wing, told me everything, how I'm supposed to act, to wear, to what I'm supposed to dip the clubhouse guy. And Dwight Evans was the same way. Bruce Hurst, Hershey was great, too, so I was I was pretty lucky to have some great veterans when I got up there. And um, and all the way through, I mean, the, the history, I, mean, I remember one spring training, I pitched three innings in spring training, I went to the back room to drop off my Jersey, my wet stuff, at a round table there, just about this size. We were playing the Yankees. They were, they were um, in Fort Lauderdale back then, or something like that. And uh, Red Sox Yankees in in Fort Myers, where our first complex was at. And I go back to the washer and dryer, and I look over, and it's an absolute who's who. There's like five or six guys sitting at the table playing cards, and it's Ted Williams, Dom DiMaggio, with Red Sox hit. The other DiMaggio, Joe, Big Joe sitting there, Mantle, Johnny Pesky. And I don't even, I'm like the tin man in the Wizard of Oz shaking. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, Ted's big booming voice. This was 86. So I just came off my big year with the Sox. So it was 80, beginning of 87, I think. And that's spring training. And Ted's like, hey, kid. And I'm like, yes, sir. I'm like, yes, sir, no, sir, Joe. He goes, let me tell you something. We watched you pitch there in between dealing cards and mantles right there. He goes, you got a chance in this game, but if you had to me, what would you throw me? And Ted Williams is asking. I'm like, ah, marbles in my mouth. And I'm like, ah, ah. And then he goes, kid, I would look for your slider. You know why I sound like a no sir, Mr. Williams? He goes, because I can hit your damn fastball. Yes, sir, Mr. Williams, I ran out of that. Fast forward to the next year, I went back to backside, so now I'm feeling pretty good. Kind of, you know, I, I got a nickname, and I'm Ted, and Mickey, you know, there's some other guys there, not the same group, but pretty close. And Ted said the same thing. You remember what I asked you last year, Rocket? I go, yes, sir, Ted, I remember. I said, you said you would look for my slider because you could hit my fastball. He goes, yeah, that's it, that's exactly right. I go, I got this thing called a split finger now, Ted? He goes, no, that's cheating. <laughs> Clemens also spoke about what he's doing today. So where are you now? Have you just put all this in the rearview mirror and you're plowing ahead, your foundation and other things? You're very, very busy right now. Yeah, I'm busy. And like I tell people, I did it for 24 years. I loved it. Like I told you, a lot of respect for the teams I play for, work ethic, everything else. Um, but I tell people that's what I did. It's not who I am as a person. Like I said, we had the foundation for, we just celebrated our 30th year. We help out-risk children. We do some really fun auction item stuff. And uh, so and this was this was great when I heard from the guys that come, that we won 
wanted to have this little chat. This is always great to come back somewhere that honored you and you get to see some cool stuff. But uh, um, yeah, just familiar faces. I mean, this is home for me. When the other teams, the Yankees, uh, Blue Jays, uh, Red Sox asked me to call or talk to one of their pitchers, I do it. Still love working with the guys here in Houston. Um, again, so much fun for me to come home for three years, play, sleep, you know, sleep in my own bed play alongside guys that I've watched for a long time. Get to the World Series, I mean, we flipped a football town for those three years. I mean, it was, we didn't, we didn't have an empty seat in that stadium, and it was rocking. And, uh, but yeah, just, this, you know, the stuff that uh, I enjoy doing, we've got plenty of golf events, I've got plenty uh, investments that we keep checking up on, and, um, and just, uh, just enjoying it. You know, got the grandbabies, I'm poppy rocking now. Uh, I do probably, I don't know, it's been out there a little bit, but I do some DJing at night. DJ No Request is my official name. I play what I want, even if you request it. Just enjoying chasing Cody now, too. Cody's getting a little little taste of it. He actually texted me when you talked about 24 years. It was funny, he goes, two days ago, he goes, Dad, I'm coming up on one year of service time. How the heck did you do this for 24? And I said, you grind it out, baby. So you gotta love what you do. and. Uh, hopefully he'll get some more bats and get in there and Phillies will get going. Clemens was also asked to share the story about the Astros' famous 18-inning playoff game against Atlanta during the 2005 National League Division Series. The Rocket came into the game during the 16th inning and gave up only one hit over three innings. Clemens was credited with the victory and the win placed Houston in the National League Championship Series en route to the franchise's first-ever World Series appearance. Moderator Bill Brown prefaced the story by calling it one of the best in Astros history. So we were together last year at that event in May Park. This is one of the best stories in Astros history. And as you know, in 2005, playoff game Atlanta, Anybody remember that one? Yeah. And um, I'm going to let you take it from there. That's similar to the uh, 20 strikeout game, real close actually. Those are probably my two craziest ones. Uh, so, playing the Braves, I'm scheduled to go, I think, game five. Pettit's, if we, if we lose, we go to Atlanta. And Pettit's supposed to pitch. But anyway, it's like a 12 o'clock game. My youngest one is in a Pop Warner football game, playoff game, which worked out perfectly because we didn't have to report. We weren't going to hit on the field. They were painting the logos on the field or something was going on. So we're hitting in the cages. You warm up on your own, kind of almost like a show and go. And um, so I roll in there about 20 minutes. I've had enough to have done all my work, did all my running at the house, everything I needed to do. Go to the game. I watch a halftime of the little guys that I've got to get to the stadium playoff game. Get to the stadium. Haven't touched the ball, thrown them off high field. I see Hickey, our rookie pitching coach, and I say, Hick, what's up? Where's Pettit? He goes, well, I said, I need to talk to you. He goes, Pettit's at home, can't get his head off the pillow, he's got the flu. He goes, how do you feel? I go, what are you talking about? He goes, thinking about, you know, we go to Atlanta, you're, you're, you're up. I go, okay, well, I can't tell you how I feel because I ain't touched the ball. We never, you know, we just was showing him. He goes, you need to find out how you feel. And Gar Phil Garner's in the dugout, he's listening to the whole thing. Now, I've got a jacket on with the Astros t-shirt on it. They lock up my jerseys. For some reason, my jerseys disappear on the road and everywhere else with these clubhouse guys. 
And uh, so they locked both of my game jerseys up, and so I got a t-shirt on. And I go, okay, well, I'll figure what's up. Well, I got everybody in the suite. Kobe's my oldest one. He's getting ready to get drafted by the Astros. He's a senior in high school. I call up, I call up to the suite, get Kobe, I go, what are you doing? It's the third inning of this game, close game with Atlanta. I said, get down here. I said, meet me in the back of the cage. I got to play catch, and I need you to catch me. Everybody else is on the field, game's going on. What's going on, Bob? I go, I might be pitching tomorrow in Atlanta. I don't know what. He goes, can I bring my buddy Blake with me? He's number two. I said, yeah, bring him down, whatever you got to do. Get in the cage in the far back of the stadium underneath, and I start playing catch with Kobe. And I throw about 15 pitches, about 70 miles an hour. My shoulder feels good. I'm, I'm good. There's two bats sitting right there. And Kobe goes, hey, Dad, throw me a couple. Just, I'm going to hit the second set. I hit the cage. All right. I throw like two, and he laces them both. And the second one is a bomb, and he flips the bat on Dad. I go, wait a minute, hold up, hold up, get back in the box. Now, full length, you know, 60 feet, 6 inches, and we we start going at each other. And before I blink, I've thrown 55 pitches, 90 miles an hour. I'm soaked. My shirt's soaked. I said, y'all get out of here. And they go up. I walk through the weight room. The strength coach sees me. He's like, where did it look like I went through a car wash? Where the hell have you been? I go, I'm fine. I was just getting, trying to stretch out and get loose. Get through the trainer's room, trainer's like, what the hell are you? I go, nah, I'm good. Put my jacket back and go to the tunnel. I tell Hick, I go like this, give him a tunnel. And he's like, I'm sweating, I'm sweating right now. Garner's like, what are you doing? I go, I just played a little catch, don't worry, not no big deal. Like that. Now, fast forward, this game starts happening. Next thing you know, was it, is it awesome to hit the granny to tie the game up? He had a solo homer in Yeah, Okay, the solo. Yeah. So he hits a solo. Garner's already asked me twice. I got my tennis shoes on. He goes, you need to find your jersey and get your spikes on. I go, because I bunted, obviously, the best on the team. So he's going to use me as a bunt. This game's getting weird. Next thing you know, nothing happens, nothing happens. Now we're in extras. And now we're in the, like, the 13th inning, I think it is. Gardner comes and looks at me and goes, where's your jersey? He go, I go, what are you talking about? And he goes, no, it's not for money. You need to get your spikes on the thing. I'm, you may have to get to the bullpen. I go, oh, God. I just threw, I just threw nine innings an hour ago. <laughs> My arm, there's no way I can pitch in a major league game right now. And uh, I go, serious? Boom, next inning, nobody he goes, you need to go down. I go, well, I'm not walking across the field. Now, the, 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 the other part of my family, they're watching the game on ESPN, and they see me. I go underneath the tunnel, and I walk out through the, the door out there where they bring the, the gear, and I hover real tightly across by the bullpen there at Minute Maid, and I go sit down, and Lidge and Wheeler, I think, are just the only ones left. And for sure, Wheeler. And they're like, what are you doing? I go, two things. I haven't eaten all day. I'm starving. Where's that big bag of garbage you guys bring out here with candy bars and bananas? And he goes, oh, rock. We throw that in the stands after the third inning. So I said, get all the club bus kid to bring me two bananas and a power man. I'm sitting out there and I'm looking at the lineup. Now we're in the 15th. Wheeler's gone. There goes Danny. I'm sitting out there by myself with a bullpen coach. I'm, I'm going to get in this game. This is going to be crazy. And uh, so I eat the bananas. Gardner calls down, and I tell Phil, I said, I told our bullpen coach, call him back because Wheeler's spot is coming up, and I can, I'll bunt for him. He's never running. He's a reliever. He won't get it down. He'll get me in the game. 
and Garner gets on the phone. You just worry about getting ready. I might have to use you on the mound. You get ready, hangs up to me. Now his lineup card looks like a three-year-old with Crayolas on it. There's marks everywhere on it. And he realized what I was talking about. Phone, barely hung up, the phone rings again. He goes, he's right, get him in here. But right before that, the bullpen coach said, you need to get up and throw. I go, no, nah, really, I feel pretty good. I really don't. But he goes, no, you need to. So I get up there and I throw like six pitches, about 50 miles an hour. And he's on the phone telling uh, Hickey, he's like, oh, God, this is going to be a disaster. He can't even, he can barely even throw. So I lobbed, I run in there, I get the bunt down. And, uh, but the, the family seen it on ESPN, seems to sit in the bullpen. They were freaking out. I get out there and it just came to life and the lights got bright, man. And I pitched three scoreless. And, we would still be playing if Chris Burke didn't hit that home run. We'd still be there. So that's how it went. Audience members were also given the opportunity to ask Roger Clemens questions. One asked about what it was like to return to Fenway Park in the visiting dugout after pitching for the Red Sox for so long. Well, the first time back was with the Blue Jays. That was my first one. And my catcher, Charlie O'Brien, he usually walks shoulder to shoulder with me to every bullpen on the road. And uh, we came out of the dugout at Fenway on the opposite side, and he was about where you were at, walking to the bullpen. And I go, hey, what are you doing here? I'm not standing next to you on this walk going out there. And Charlie said it was one of the most electric games that they were pitching. It was, it was weird. It was the first time that I had to face some of my old team, you know, Mo Vaughn, John Ballantin, some guys like that. So it was a little different, but you know, you just pretty much just lock back in. New York, New York's you know same way. I mean, it's the same thing when you're in those stadiums. Like, like Derek Jeter and I always told it, and I told my boys, they don't boo nobody. You know, you walk out. Derek and I walk out of the dugout. They come to the hardest place uh, to pitch uh, as far as uh, people getting on you is uh, Comiskey White Sox. Warming up out there. That I remember one game I was warming up. Mel Stoudemire got a chuck because some guy was there's. Six college drunk football players right on the railing just wearing me out. The only piece of quiet I got was when the anthem played. They had to shut up for two minutes. He was also asked who were the toughest players for him to pitch against. I just talked about it earlier. I think uh, when I came to the, the Astros, we were in the National League, and the contact guys are the toughest. I, I don't want to get in a 11-pitch at bat. I want to get you out of there within four or five pitches. Probably throw something conducive down in the zone and get you out of there because they, they don't strike out that much. Uh, then you have to worry about a three, four, five hitter. But like you know, Pujols, Pujols would always say that you know I would always give him one good pitch to hit, and if he missed it, I got it. Those the home run guys, they're swinging obviously uh, a little higher rate of speed, so you have to make a mistake or two to get those guys. But um, fun for me. I wanted I tell the story all the time. Reggie was just at my house the other day. He's doing some work for the Astros, and uh, I wanted to get to the Major League Space Reggie Jackson. And so when I did, I was at Fenway Park, third or fourth start, third or fourth start of the season, and our big uh, announcer, Sherm Feller, a big booming voice, uh, now batting for the California Angels, number 44, Reggie Jackson. And, and I'm like, I was behind the mound. My shoes weren't untied, but I was untying them and retying them because I didn't want to turn around and make eye contact with him. And then I turn around, there he is with his half-shell helmet, his glasses. I tell the story all the time. Punched him out three times, first three times. Last one, he had a two-run homer in the bullpen. There he goes. I was almost happy that he hit the homer. But, uh, so that, that was fun, you know, um, having the opportunity to meet Koufax, uh, go on Don Drysdale's radio show a couple times with him. 
just you know some great ways that you know again I was fortunate to pitch as long as I did. You know, you go come right out of the University of Texas. I'm at Fenway Park, and I'm pitching against Don Baylor and Carlton Fisk and Dave Kingman, Greg Luzinski. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty cool when you think back at those guys that uh, paved the way for us. The Lone Star Luncheon concluded with an audience member asking Roger Clemens if he had a favorite ballpark in which to pitch. Uh, the best stadium by far probably still is. It gets rated, uh, for y'all, it gets rated the best food uh, every year in and year out. And I'm not kidding you, the, the, the infield and outfield grass, you can throw your turkey sandwich in the grass and pick it up and eat it. It's perfect. It's Anaheim, where the Angels play. The weather's always perfect. Stadium's really, really good. Uh, speaking on stadiums, there were some little things that I try to tell the pitchers these days, too, because most of the stadium guys will do it is when I was at Fenway, another little thing to help me concentrate and help my mechanics when I was young working on, uh, you know, my mechanics. The, if you, a lawnmower, the width of a lawnmower, when they mow it, is about the width of a, a major league uh, pitcher's plate. About 17 inches, maybe a little bit bigger. I told the guy at Fenway, Yankee Stadium, Toronto was easy because they had a seam actually running right down Broadway. And then here in Houston, the last mow job would be right down Broadway. So when I was on the mound, it's like I'm a bowler. I got a lane, and I know right where I'm going. I'm able to make a quick adjustments on the run. No different than when I'm playing golf, and I hit a slice, and I hit the slice, and get my brain speed out, go to the right side of the tee box, just play it the rest of the day, go to the range and fix it. There's constant making in-game adjustments to, to stay alive. Good. Thanks for being here, y'all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Hampton in Waco. We invite you to visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. And when you do, book your stay at the Hampton in Waco. Learn about future events at the Texas Sports Hall of Fame by visiting the Hall of Fame's official website, TSHOF. You can also follow the Texas Sports Hall of Fame's social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast and give it a great review wherever you listen to podcasts.